Turn with me, please, to John 20, the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. It really happened, you know. Nineteen hundred years ago, our Lord broke out of that tomb, and he once for all beat death. It really happened. And that's the basis of our hope as Christians. It's not a myth. It's not a dream. It really occurred. It all began uh, one Sunday morning when Mary came to the tomb. Mary came to the tomb, uh, saw that the stone had been rolled away from the door, went back to announce to the uh, disciples that someone had stolen his body. Peter and John ran to the tomb. John was probably the younger of the two, and uh, he arrived there before Peter did, but hesitated to go inside the, uh, inside the tomb. Waited at the door. Peter, always impetuous to the end, ran past and into the interior of the tomb, and there he saw the grave close. And John, after a moment, followed him into the darkness of the tomb, and he was able to see what, uh, what Peter had seen. He saw the linen wrappings like a body cast, perfectly conformed to Jesus' body, but the body was gone. In those days, they anointed the body with spices, and after a period of time, the body cast was set up like concrete so that the, uh, the linen wrappings were stiff. So he could see where the body had lain, and off to one side he could see where the turban had been wrapped around his head. There was a space of several inches where his head had been, but he was gone. And the text tells us in verse 8 that John saw and he believed. The other disciple that he refers to here is John himself. That's his way of speaking of himself in the gospel. He saw and he believed. He realized that no one could have stolen the body. There was no way to get the grave clothes off of the body. The grave clothes were not stripped off of Jesus' dead carcass. Rather, he passed right through the linen wrappings. And John, remembering this event, says he saw and he believed. And John's account goes on to tell us that Mary Magdalene remained outside of the tomb. Perhaps she went into another part of the garden, and uh, she was there weeping. And in verse 14, we're told that she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Our Lord said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And Mary recognized his voice, and she threw her arms around him in an embrace. And the Lord, after a moment, said, Mary, we have things to do. I have things that I must do before I ascend. You must tell the disciples that I've risen from the dead. And Mary turned on her heel and scampered through the garden and over the hill and down into the city of Jerusalem and burst into the house where the disciples were staying. And she said, I've seen him. I've seen the Lord. I actually saw him. I put my hands around him. He's alive. And the disciples said, oh, isn't that just like a woman? Come on, Mary. No hysteria. This is, this is not the time for it. 
He's not, he's not alive. He's dead. It's all over. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem us, but he's gone. John doesn't tell us, but uh, a little later that afternoon, there were two disciples, one by the name of Cleopas and another, who were making their way down to a little city called Emmaus, which was just a, a stone's throw from Jerusalem, about as far as from here to Meridian. And as they were walking along, the Lord fell in step beside them, but they didn't know it was the Lord. And they were discussing the events of the day, which uh, the Lord uh, listened in on. After a while, he asked them what had happened, and they, they said, You must be the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened this day. Day before yesterday, the Romans killed the one that we thought was the Messiah. They put him to death. Surely you've heard. We had thought that he was the one to deliver us. We were wrong. He's dead. He's gone. It's all over. And Luke tells us that uh, the Lord, beginning with Moses' writings, with the law and through the prophets, began to teach them all things about himself. And, and Luke says their hearts began to burn in them as hope was rekindled. When they came to Emmaus, the Lord waved goodbye and he started to pass on through the city. There's these two disciples invited him to spend the night, share a meal with him, and the Lord accepted. And as, as was the custom, they invited him as the guest to say the blessing over the meal. And as he took the bread, picked the bread up in his hands, and he began to break it and pray, they saw his hands, they saw the nail prints in his hands, and they realized that it was the Lord, and he vanished. These two men did just what you and I would do. They set the Guinness World's record for the seven-mile run to Emmaus, from Emmaus to Jerusalem. They hot-footed it up that trail, burst through the city gates, down through the streets of Jerusalem, in on the disciples who were gathered that Sunday evening, and they said, we have seen the Lord. And the disciples said, ah, oh, come on, who are you kidding? He's dead. Dead people don't rise from the dead. Once dead, always dead. That's just the way it is. Everybody knows that. We tend to think that people back then were very naive. We're very sophisticated today. We know that people don't rise from the dead today. But back in that pre-scientific era, before they had the technology that we had, they used to believe naive things like that. But that's absurd. People no more rose from the dead then than they do now. No one believed it. The only ones who believed it were Mary, who had embraced the Lord, Cleopas and his friend, who had talked and eaten with the Lord, and John and Peter, because they had seen the evidence in the wrappings, the linen wrappings. No one else believed. And John picks up the story in verse 19, shortly after Cleopas and his friend burst in upon the disciples. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that would be Sunday. And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, they had not only locked the gate out in the front of the house, the gate to the courtyard, but they had locked the front door as well. And they were hiding for fear that the Jews would take some sort of action against them as disciples of the Lord. This was not an official meeting of the church. These were Jews. They normally worshipped on the Sabbath, Saturday. This wasn't a church meeting. They were scared out of their wits. They were hiding from the Jews. And we're told that Jesus came and stood in their midst. 
I don't know how he did that, do you? He wasn't hiding behind the door. He didn't come in through the window like Superman. He materialized right in front of their eyes. John's uh, description of this event is um, uh, really very simple. Luke says that pandemonium broke out. The women screamed. The men uh, headed for the exits. It was a real panic situation. They all thought that it, he was a ghost. They were scared out of their wits until the, Jesus, until the Lord said to them, Peace, be with you. Be quiet. Be calm. It is I. Don't be afraid. And John says, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Luke again gives a more complete account. He tells them that the Lord let them touch his hands and his side, and, and he ate a piece of fish that they had prepared for the evening meal to prove to them that he was not an apparition. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He was real. They saw him. They touched him. They talked to him. They listened to his voice. They knew it was the same, uh, same voice, the same person. They could recognize him. They knew he was the risen Lord of glory. He had beat death, the only man to ever accomplish that uh, feat. There's a theory about, called the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He passed out on the cross and then later revived in the coolness of the tomb staggered into Jerusalem, and uh, the Jews of that time believed that he had risen from the dead. But if you stop and think for a moment, you'll realize how, how absurd that theory really is. Jesus had been beaten within an inch of his life. He had been hanged on a cross. He had a spear thrust, thrust through his side into his heart. He was taken down from the cross, wrapped in these linen uh, wrappings, placed in the tomb. He was without food and water for at least 48 hours to believe that someone could then come to life, wriggle out of the grave clothes, roll away a stone that weighed tons, overpower two fully armed Roman soldiers, is absurd. And then appear in a, as an emaciated, dehydrated, half-dead individual in front of the disciples and cause them to believe that he, was, he had risen from the dead. It's not so. couldn't happen that way. They saw that he was real. He had risen from the dead. And Jesus took this occasion to teach them. We're not going to take time to look at the passage. It's verses 21 through 23, except to say that, that Jesus sent them out to be his witnesses, witnesses of his resurrection. And the first person to whom they gave witness was Thomas, verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas was his uh, Aramaic name, his Semitic name. Didymus, his Greek name. They both mean twin. That was simply his name, twin. And he wasn't there. I don't know why. Perhaps he was off fishing. Maybe he couldn't get off work the first time the disciples were together, but he wasn't there when the Lord appeared the first time. So they went after him to tell him, and they tried to convince him. The uh, verb tense suggests that it was an ongoing discussion with Thomas. The disciples therefore were saying, or they kept saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I shall see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never, by any means, whatever, believe. 
He uses a double negative. That's bad English grammar, but it's good grammar in Greek. He wants to emphasize the fact that there is absolutely no way that he will accept the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead unless he can test it out empirically, unless he can see it, unless he can talk to the Lord, unless he can touch him and, and feel the marks of, of the prince. Thomas was from Missouri. He had to be shown. Now, Thomas has received a lot of bad press over the years. He's doubting Thomas, the skeptic, the cynic. But what we forget is that Thomas was simply demanding the same sort of evidence on which all the other disciples had accepted the resurrection of Jesus. Mary saw him. Cleopas and the other disciples saw him. The ten that were in the room that Sunday morning saw him, talked to him, touched him, ate with him. And Thomas was asking for no more. That's all any of us would ask for. If we lived in that, in that era, we want to see him. We, we have to test it. I have to see it with my own eyes. Seeing is believing, we say. So Thomas was no more skeptical or doubtful than any of the other believers of that time. He, he, he just had to check it out for himself. Apparently, this discussion with Thomas uh, lasted for an entire week, and they couldn't convince him. But as John says, uh, a week later... Eight days later, as he puts it, that's his inclusive way of saying one week later or on the next Sunday, his disciples were inside. And again, this was not an official meeting of the church. It was simply a gathering of the disciples of this, of this time. And Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. He literally reproduces Thomas's words. He doesn't rebuke him. He appears before him and invites him to, uh, to see him and to touch him, to test it out for himself. John doesn't tell us that Thomas actually did touch the Lord. He fell to his knees and said to him, My Lord and my God. There's no higher assertion of the character of Jesus to be found anywhere in the New Testament. No one else even came close. Even Jesus' reference to his own deity tend to be indirect, but here Thomas lays it on the line. And this coming from a Jew who was steeped in Jewish theology. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And Yet this Jew, at this point, recognizes that Jesus himself is God. And Jesus doesn't correct him. And John doesn't correct the record. We're told in uh, the book of Revelation that John at one point made a mistake. He fell to his knees and worshipped an angel. The angel drew him to his feet and said, Don't worship me, worship God. So John knew it would be wrong to worship Jesus if he were a mere man. Or to ascribe deity to him? No, the text is not corrected because in truth Jesus is God. And the Lord doesn't condemn Thomas. He commends him. He said to him in verse 29, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. This passage is often used to contrast Thomas's faith with the faith of the other apostles, as though to say, 
Thomas, um, the other disciples didn't see and they believed, but you saw and believed, and that's a lesser measure of faith. But that's not what John is doing at all, or what Jesus is doing at all. Because the other disciples saw and believed just as Thomas had seen and believed. Mary saw him, touched him. John, Peter, the other disciples, Cleopas, they all had the same sort of evidence. They saw and they believed. He's not contrasting Thomas's lack of faith with the real faith of the disciples. He's contrasting the faith of the generation of eyewitnesses that saw him with the generations that would succeed him that would not have an opportunity to see him. They would have to believe because of the written witness of those who did see him. You see? That's why John goes on to say in verses 30 and 31, Jesus did many other things. There are many other signs. There are many other things we could say about Jesus, which he says, I suppose, if they were written, the world could not contain the books. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, John said, we saw it. Now we have written it down so succeeding generations can believe it. It's exactly the same point that he makes in 1 John 1 when he says what we have seen and heard and tasted and touched and we've We listen to him, the word of life, these things we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us. The sort of evidence for the resurrection that's presented to us is the sort of evidence that you have for any event in history. It's the best sort of evidence. It's the sort of evidence that any historian would accept. It's the record of credible eyewitnesses, men who were there, men and women who saw it, and who reported what they had seen. The evidence for the resurrection is as good or better than the evidence for any historical event in the past, the occurrence of which no one would question. You see, you can't rerun history. You can't run it back through again. You can't fight the Civil War over or the Sheep Eater War or, or the Trojan War. They, it happened once in history. We have to take somebody, someone's word who was there. We can't rerun uh, Washington's crossing of the, of the Potomac. Or the Delaware. Which did he cross? I can't even remember. Delaware, right. Someone was there. Someone saw it. Someone even painted a picture of it. Who was there. So uh, we believe them because they're credible witnesses. And that's why we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Someone was there. They tell me that uh, a few hundred years ago, Bonneville stood on these cliffs off here to the east of us and looked down over the... Uh, the Boise River bottom, and he saw the trees, and he shouted out in French, Le bois, le bois, voyez le bois. The trees, the trees, see the trees. And the name stuck. That's where the name Boise came from. It's an anglicized form of the French word for trees, as you know. How do we know? Well, we don't recreate that scene every year. We know because someone was there and heard him, and he reported it to us, and we believe it. And that's why we believe the resurrection. The disciples were there. They touched him. They, they talked to him. They ate with him. They realized that it really happened, and then they reported it to us. Now, we're not merely left with a, with a historical record. It's not the only evidence we have, because John tells us in verse 31... That, those, these, that though these are written that you may believe, when we believe, we have life. These have been written that you, that's us, 
in succeeding generations, those who did not see him, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. For 1,900 years, whenever someone has believed that Jesus rose from the dead and they have, they have based their, their life on that fact, something has happened to them. Their guilt has been taken away, maybe not immediately, but as God begins to work his magic on their, on their lives, they increasingly become less and less burdened with the sense of, of guilt with which we're all born. Their sense of despair has been lifted. I read this past week of a student at Oxford who had written in his diary this entry. Of the two options, life and death, I like neither. Because neither really offer any hope. John says we can have life if, if we believe him, if we entrust ourselves to him. The fear of life is removed from us, and the fear of death. Just this past Tuesday, I spoke as the last of a series of speakers in the Lenten lecture, uh, lectures at First Methodist Church, and I started out talking about death and the impact of death upon us, and what struck me is, is how quiet everything became. You could have heard a, a pin drop. No one said a thing. It struck me again what a, what a fearful thing death is to so many people. I talked to someone this past week who said that his, his mother is so afraid of death that she can't, uh, she can't be in the same room when the subject is discussed. She, she gets up and walks, walks out. Hebrews tells us that it's the fear of death that has held, in, held the human race in bondage from the very beginning. It tyrannizes us. It's inevitable. No one escapes. No one gets out of this uh, life alive, as someone has said. I heard of a girl a few weeks ago who, who said she wasn't really afraid of death because she was sure by the time she got to that point in her life, science would have done something about it. But uh, that's, that's wistful thinking. The death rate remains a constant, 100%. It's something that we all someday have to face. But Jesus has delivered us from the fear of death. He beat death, and so can we. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he die, shall live again. He gives us a quality of life that cannot be taken from us. I have a good friend back in California who's dying of cancer. And through the kindness of some of the men in the Wednesday morning class, I was able to go back and spend a day with him recently. And it happened on that particular day that he was undergoing chemotherapy at Stanford Medical Center. And I went into the waiting room where he was, uh, he was waiting to be admitted. And uh, he's a big, sort of boisterous fellow with a, with a loud voice. You can hear him 100 yards away. And he always talks at, at uh at the top of his lungs, it seems. And as I came in the door, John said, David, how in the world are you? And I said, I'm great, John. How are you doing? He said, I'm dying. But uh, he says, you know what? I'm going to beat you there. I'm going to see the Lord before you do. Doesn't that make you jealous? 
the waiting room was full of people that were waiting for uh, chemotherapy, and it struck me after I was sitting there for a few minutes that uh, most of those people, or many of them, were probably terminal. Of course, all of us are if we stop and think for a moment, but but their terminus was uh, fixed. They knew it. And when he greeted me, every head in that room went up. People were reading books and newspapers, and everyone fixed on us and our conversation. They put things down, and they began to listen. And John began to talk about uh, the way he was spending his last few months going through the ward, sharing Christ with people. And, and then we began to plan his funeral as though it were a going-away party. Got out of sheet of yellow paper and a pencil and we started making notes and he said I want this and that and I want you to say this and I want so and so to do this and every person in the room was listening and after a time a nurse came to get John took him off for his therapy and I was left alone in the room and no one picked up their books they just stared at me <laughs> and there was a, a woman sitting right across the aisle from me and she said you know my husband is dying he only has a few weeks to live she said I wish that he had the hope that that man has. And I had a chance to tell her and really everyone in the room because they were all listening in about the Lord who really did rise 1900 years ago. He really did. It's not a dream. It's not a myth. It's not too good to be true. It's so good it has to be true. He really did rise from the dead. And therefore so shall we. And as I said before, everyone who has said at some point in their life, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to die for me, for rising on my behalf, for my justification, they've discovered that something happened to them. They were delivered not only from the fear of life, but the fear of death. That's what John means when he says, believing, you'll have life in his name. Let's stand. And will you pray with me? Especially those of you who, who may have come here without the Lord, but looking for something to fill the emptiness of your life. The Lord Jesus died for us. All of our sin was placed upon him. He, the sinless one, the just one, was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of, of God in him. That's the way God takes care of our guilt. He takes all of our sin and he puts it on Christ and Christ died for us and then God raised him as the sign of our justification. And if we put our faith in him, if we believe him, if we count on him, if we trust him, we'll have life in his name. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth, for taking on flesh, becoming like us in every way apart from sin. Thank you for dying for me. I want you to be my Savior and forgive my sins. I believe that you rose again for my justification. I want you to be my Lord and my God. Come into my life Make me the person that I know I should be. Change me. Give me your life. Thank you for coming into my life. 
Lord Jesus, we do thank you for this special time, this reminder of your resurrection. We pray that that every day we would remember again the truth that because you have because you're alive, we're alive. Help us to walk in the freedom and the vigor and the strength of that life that's made available to us 24 hours a day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.